What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio with me, Kieran Smith. Today's episode is about the Rhonda writer, Ron Berry. Now, as you know, Dan refuses to, to read anything that isn't by or about Karl Marx. And at the same time, Nath, I think, said he's busy working on his Lego house or something. I can't, I can't remember exactly. Something to do with Lego. But um, luckily, I've got two Berry experts here with me today in Dr. Sarah Morse and Dr. Georgia Bedette. So hello, Georgia and Sarah. Hi. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Good. Not bad, not bad. How's life in uh, November lockdown? Uh, never ending, because I'm in Bristol and I'm yeah. going to be coming out to tier three. Yay. I actually went out for a meal last night and um, it was just a blatant piss take because there were three tables of four, at least four people like all sat together so it wasn't as if it was sort of they were even pretending it, was, it wasn't even, they didn't even put up a pretense of sort of oh fancy seeing you here it was just blatantly a big party <laughs> in the restaurant so yeah that's the way things are going here so that's that so georgia and sarah have recently published a book about barry which is why well, i say recently this is what when was it published january this year i think it came out just in time for his centenary didn't it yeah Mid was about, about Valentine's, wasn't it? About sort of 13th of February came out, just in time. That's right, yeah. But obviously with the various other things going on this year, we just haven't got around to it. I did check today that um, I set up a, a, the WhatsApp group to try and arrange this episode on the 31st of January. And, and now we're doing it at the end of November. It's really good to do it because I'm, I'm actually really excited about this episode because I think Ron Berry is, well, he's, he's definitely my favourite Welsh writer. I think he is... He's just so brilliant, that, and, but also underrated. It's really frustrating that there's, I think, not enough conversation about his work out there at the moment. So it'd be really good to try and use this to sort of bring him back into the spotlight. And it is his centenary year, so he would have been 100 this year. So that's, that's good as well. But maybe you can just say a little bit about your kind of Barry credentials, if you like, both of you just so that the listeners know that we've got a couple of experts here. So, uh, what, so what's, where did your interest in, in Ron Berry's work come from? Well, we both um, did our PhD studies at Swans University and Professor Wynne Thomas was one of our uh, supervisors and he introduced us to Berry quite early on in our studies. Um, uh, I wrote about representations of disability in contemporary Welsh writing in English and I used Barry's as a starting point um, because he chronicles um, quite a large period of writing from 1960s onwards to uh, mid-90s and he looks at uh, disability in a de-industrial world so as industries declining in South Wales so that was my interest and Sarah worked on Barry as well in thesis so she yeah i found berry when um library wales was launched because the first book in the series was yeah, so long yeah, to Beb. yeah, yeah. That was what roughly 2006 was it yeah 2005 i remember um i had an invitation to the launch of the library of wales at at the hay festival back in the day when arts events had copious champagne and you know <laughs> Uh, salmon. It was lovely, sort of mid-morning event on a Sunday, and Nal Griffiths was there reading from his induction. I thought, who's this? Like, who, who is who is Ron Berry? 
because I'd, I'd done a master's, hadn't come across Ron Berry at all. Yeah. And um, it kind of went from there. My PhD looked at landscape in the work of Gwyn Thomas and Ron Berry and how they both looked at landscape and environment in the Ronda. And about 12 months in, I realized I wish I'd kind of done the whole PhD on Ron, but I was stuck. So, <laughs> um, but then it just went from there and it, he's just really interesting. He was just completely different from anything I've done before. Yeah, and, it, and you know, his work beyond the Library of Wales stuff that sort of, as you said, came out, what, 2006 and after. I mean, I had never heard of Barry until, um, until I started at Swansea in like 2009, 2010. And the, his work is just not remotely well-known at all, despite, I think, probably being the best kind of chronicler of, of South Wales and, and, and the nature of what it is to be Welsh in lots of ways. Yeah, he, he really, he's in the mac of it, isn't he? He's in there. Yeah, very much. He's, he's not on the periphery at all, and I think he includes a lot of the other writers, contemporaries of not being in the thick of it, really. Yeah, yeah he's, he's got this great line about, um, in his autobiography, about coal mining had to be experienced day by day, year in, year out, the hole ingested for as long as oxygen fans the skull mix. He was really, he, he didn't like the fact that you had people who'd never been down a mine, like um, uh, the author of How Green is a Valley, who would romanticise the industry completely and who had no idea what it was like. So Ron just wanted to kind of present what it was like. So Barry was born in 1920 in, in Now, I think there's something important about the fact he's from Blindcombe because Blindcombe, if, if you know of it, is the very, like, out, it's like the outer limits of the Ronda Vaur Valley, right? It's the top end, past Triorki, past Trahur, but Blindcombe is sort of a, basically one street, isn't it, almost? It's sort of a, it's very much a dead end, right at the top end of the Ronda Valley. It's born there in 1920. And, you know, being born at that time in that place, he has very limited options. So leave school at 14 to go and work in the pits. He's and ends up working in the pits till he's around 20, right? He's very athletic and a sort of a quite talented sportsman. So he's into cycling and football and actually plays professionally for Swansea Town. Um, but that was kind of brought to a, an abrupt end with a, a knee injury, I think, in 1943. Um, but nevertheless, you know, he's working down the mines in his late teens. And, you know, as a kind of intelligent person and a, and a, and a talented person, he's you know, he's really coming up against the limitations of, of the kind of world that's been bequeathed him. And he's really resentful of the fact that he has got no other option in his life besides the dead end of working down a mine, you know. And he's, he's forced to work in some of the most dangerous pits in South Wales. I mean, that is just what the work that's available to him at that time. And I think what's interesting is that it's from that early age, he starts refusing to, to, to sort of take on the mantle of, of the miner. And just, you know, and live that kind of stereotypical South Walian lifestyle. And I think it's that first refusal to 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 refuse to work down one of the most dangerous pits in that part of the valley that is really important in terms of developing his own sense of himself and sense of his relationship to to place. You know, so there is one little passage I was going to take read from um, the autobiography "History Is What You Live." which I think is a pretty good like, summary, really, of his attitude at that time. So the, the autobiography isn't published until the late 1990s, but this is him when he's, when he's 20, basically. 
And what's happened is um, he's out of work and he's been forced by one of the colliery managers to go and work in this really dangerous pit. And it's dangerous because, I, you know, either you end up getting a, you know, a, a tip fall and, or a crash and everything lands on you and you, you break half the bones in your body or you end up with pneumoconiosis or tuberculosis. And so he's, you know, he's basically refusing this. So this is from History is What You Live. Then came the day. I went up the stairs to Mr. Jones's office. He was a man in his middle thirties, smooth boyish face, dry brown hair, whatever his humane endowment reduced to nil. I asked him for another job, anything except the hard rock heading. Scarcely a frown from Mr. Jones, neither annoyance, nor concern of any kind. My record was clean, dependable in the cold face, plus two honest years of night shift behind the cutter. I could build a cog, lay sleepers, use a boring machine, drive a haulage engine, prime water pumps, pack a gob wall, clear bottom holes, fix posts and flats, actually drive the cutter, only I was too young by mining law. Mr. Jones said, it's either the heading or a fortnight's notice. Miners were expendable in 1940, and all the men who worked in that hard rock heading are in Triorchy Cemetery. I've had no pay for three weeks, I said, he flicked cold glances as if I were valueless in all mongrel creation. Whose fault is that? I started effing and blinding. He stood up, stern, fist wagging like a lateral pendulum. I swung along one, looping across his desk, bang on the point. Mr. Jones, the manager, toppled. His feet twitched. Mr. Hughes, the cashier, rushed in from the adjoining room. A short, portly autocrat blabbing threats. Shut it, I said, or you will get the same. After trespassing down the railway tracks, I sat in the woods. Thoughtless aftermath, careless as a busted clock. Six more penniless weeks went by, signed the dole on Wednesday and Fridays, but no dole money. The lodge unexpectedly hired a defence solicitor for my appearance in Pontypridd Magistrates Court. I felt steady in the dock, fully convinced punishment would fit the crime. Prison seemed fitting. What else for assaulting a manager? Prison, I decided. Cardiff or Swansea, scraped the slate clean. A few months behind bars. But I didn't feel guilty. Arse over tipped authority deserves a few cheers. Mr. Jones was there, slim in a dark suit, brown hair brushed neatly on his worried head. A collection of JPs flanked the magistrate. This was Justice, old dangling whore of the ages, her head end drilled for, for swinging the lead. The case proceeded to and flow, fro in quietness. My solicitor performed very nicely in his iron gray double-breasted suit, a franchised weed guaranteed unremarkably comfy prospects. Conspiratorial whispers up on the bench, the magistrate and his colleagues nodding, nodding. He warned, you must learn some discipline. This time we're treating you leniently. Two years probation and five pounds costs. Will you pay now, sang the clerk out of the court. I didn't have five shillings. They gave me 14 days to pay. I felt hollow, sans pride, much less daring. Conscious heroes fragment, they undo themselves. The following Friday, miners from the Greig, Glen Romba and Gorsloin Pitts held a whip round outside the pay office. After paying the summons, I had five pounds spending money. Very many of the colliers who chipped in have passed away. I knew them all by name. Well, that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that's what that's the option that's put on the table for him either you work or you you, you know you go on notice and so he decides to punch out the, the manager <laughs> in response 
And I, yeah. and that, I just think that is like, that sums up Barry's attitude to everything. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think he thought that people, people should have the consciousness to be angry and how they expressed it was, was down to them. Um, I, I did see once in an interview with Di Smith that he'd said that people could afford to be immoral or immoral as long as they took the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly his attitude, isn't it? Is that, well, you know, I, I refuse this, this life that you're offering me, basically. If these are my only options, then I, you know, I'll take the third option because I'm not doing this. So that's that. And that's when he's 20. Right. So that's a pretty good indication of what his kind of his attitude is, I think, to, to the world he's living in. So can you just remind me what sort of happens after that? What right. He about 15 jobs in total, didn't he? After, yeah. after being a minor, I think he was, he tried a bit of teacher training. He was a swim, swimming pool manager. Yeah. Which is the title of one of his novels, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's, he joins the, the Navy. He, he does join the Army during the Second World War, doesn't he? But he goes very well, basically. Yeah. Is that right? Um, yeah, and then yeah, he goes AWOL from the army, and then ends up in the merchant navy, and mm-hmm. travels and touches on that in theatre biography, and I think some of the short fiction. Um, came back, he was working at the pool or the Lido. He was a was he a lifeguard? There's brilliant pictures of him. Um, yeah, doing all sorts of Tarzan poses. It's it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, he was um, like basically a bronze Adonis at the time, wasn't he? I'm sure there's a photo of him in like tiny tiny speedos and he's just in the red um and he i think he he also did he work as a as a carpenter he sort of he jobbed around doing sort of odd jobs he went away to work on building sites yeah well that was the funny thing about him becoming a carpenter was that he'd had this serious knee injury um as a football player in 1943 which meant you know he that seriously affected his mobility as a carpenter you spend a lot of time on your knees, <laughs> but he decides, oh, I'm just going to get <laughs> Just So later, I think he starts a course, a sort of adult education course in history at College Harlech. Yeah. But, but then gives that up pretty quickly. He just gets fed up with the tutors and fed up of the, the routine of it. Well, he said it was on economic grounds as well, but I don't know how much truth is in that. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, <laughs> maybe, probably. <laughs> yeah, not a lot. So he ends up, so he's working in the, swim, in the swimming baths, but I think... We get a bit of a, he's not, he doesn't give that much detail on it, but I think in history is what you live in the autobiography. He, he is talking about the fact that he's reading, you know, pretty advanced stuff mm. from an early age. So he's always reading and writing. Like, he doesn't ever really kind of, you know, proselytize on his sort of, his reading and writing abilities or the fact that he's extremely widely read. I mean, he was, but that, I don't think that, would, it wasn't his personality to be sort of, to wear his reading on his sleeves, you know. No, he wasn't arrogant like that. No, to be like pr- professorial or anything like that. He was just, yeah, he was just his own person really. But he was extremely widely read and he was writing prolifically. But he doesn't really start getting any major, I say major, I, I, any success at all until the 1960s. But the 60s are a really important decade for him because that's when he publishes basically all of his work. Is that right? The vast majority of his novels are in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Amateur, Travelling Loaded. And, and Desert Hunted. Yeah. 
Flame and Slag in 1968. So, and Flame and Slag is the famous kind of retelling of Aberfan, isn't it? Short, written like shortly after that all happened and published in 1968. And then the final novel of that decade, So Long Hector Bebb, um, which maybe we can talk about in a bit, that's 1970. Yeah, and he, 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 he'd worked on that throughout the 60s while the, while the other novels were coming out. Hector Bebb was such a, a long-term project for him. Yeah. He really struggled to find, find a form for Hector Bebb, didn't he? Because there's, there's 14 different voices in yeah, it's, a re- it's probably his most experimental, isn't it? And yeah. advanced, really, um, piece of work, um, which is, is one of the reasons it's brilliant. So I don't know really what happens after So Long Hector Bebb, whether it's kind of, you know, he's burnt himself out after 10 years of, you know, five novels in 10 years. I think he writes six novels, but five of them are published. So after 1970, things kind of peter out for him a little bit. So he does a little bit of TV work. He's doing a bit of work for radio as well in the 70s, I think. But not writing or certainly not publishing as much as he was. He's writing short stories, isn't he, which have been published in some of the the Welsh literary magazines. Mm -hmm. But I don't know whether, I think in the 60s, he'd sort of been lumped together with a lot of the working class writers of that era. And, you know, the Angry Young Men movement, John Osborne. Alan Silito, David Story. There's definitely similarities to their work. And so I think the, the London press were inclined to sort of put him in that bracket. But maybe when that whole movement fizzled out towards the end of the 60s, he becomes, you know, he was on the fringe already, mm. but he becomes a, sort of a bit more of an unknown then. And so it's difficult for him to really, um, you know, gain a wide readership, I suppose. Yeah, and he he was diff- he was lumped in with the angry with the um, angry young man, but he was twenty years older than them. Yeah, he, he was of a different he was of a different generation. Um, and he's, very, he's a very different he's a totally different kind of writer to those writers. You know, the, there are the obvious comparisons with the fact you know he's he's working class. He's writing from a working class perspective about working class life, um, and you know, and the struggles of of trying to make a life for yourself in in particularly while, you know, heavy industry is being slowly wound down and deindustrialized. But he, so in the, I think though that's where the similarities end, you know, he's, mm. he's very distinctive. He'd, yeah, he tried to like blow torch his way out of that tradition that he was pigeonholed in. Um, yeah. Didn't really, you know, his, his post-war, like, sub-affluent, raunchy run there didn't really fit in in anybody's. <laughs> No, yeah. really. Um, and the only one he really respected vocally was Wynne Thomas. Of the earlier kind of generation. Yeah, earlier writers, yeah. Yeah, because there's only, what, five, about five, six years between them in age? There's not that big a difference in age between him and Gwyn. But Gwyn was a grammar school boy and got out. Yeah. Mm. And Ron didn't. Periphery, wasn't he? Again. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So things kind of, yeah, professionally then, and as a writer, things kind of fizzle out for him. He writes, well, he publishes Peregrine, Peregrine Watching, which is his sort of natural history, kind of environmental writing. You know, it's more experimental than that, but it's kind of a nature writing work. That's published in 1987. And then again, he's doing sporadic TV and radio work. Some of his writer friends arrange for him to get a civil list pension, which is, the, is basically, you know, he's, he's more or less destitute by this point. He's got a family, 
but you know he's struggling to get by particularly in later age because he's quite unwell isn't he and arthritis and various other ailments that he's picked up over the years yeah is not his la- he has trouble publishing his last novel which is interesting this bygone that's not published until 1996 but i think it had been written and finished much earlier hadn't it yeah i think it was finished in the 80s um and it's really interesting because if you go into his archive and it's all in Swansea University um, Library, he just didn't stop writing. He kept on writing, but even when he he had no money, he he was writing on the backs of invoices. He's right reusing paper, so they're an absolute nightmare to to read because he's drafting a response to somebody's letter on the back of that letter. Yeah. And things like that because he just he, he hasn't you know he can't even justify buying paper so he's just writing on ev- on anything he can. It doesn't seem to be a hiatus in the writing itself; it's just in the publication side of it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he is writing, uh, you know, throughout those decades. Then. I think um, Alan Richards encouraged him to send some short stories into Planet because they were paying good money. That yeah. that was the that was why initially because he was so short of money. So he's, yeah, he never really makes a lot of money from his writing, then dies in 1997, and the autobiography, History is What You Live, is published in, posthumously in 1998. So that's kind of a broad overview of his life that doesn't really quite capture the whole, <laughs> the whole essence of it. So, I don't know, yeah, we, we touched on this, but maybe we could talk a little bit about um, his kind of relationship to let's say, you know, the Welsh tradition or the Welsh tradition of, of, of Welsh writing in English and his relationship to his Welshness. You know, you mentioned, Sarah, the fact that he's a similar age to Gwyn Thomas, who, who did pick up a much, you know, better degree of success in his life. He ended up with quite a bit of TV work and publishing plays. And, but he was already... Uh, sort of being a grammar school boy and going off to university, going to Oxford, was on a, a very different kind of trajectory. I think the point with Barry is that, you know, he starts out in Blancombe and is constantly struggling against the sort of walls of that valley his whole life. Yeah, it's really interesting. He's of the same generation, believe it or not, as R.S. Thomas, Gwyn Thomas, Dylan Thomas, you know, the, those three giants of, of voice writing in English. He's only... Well, he's within 10 years of them. But his success comes so much later because he, well, success relative or recognition because he wasn't published until the 60s, whereas others were publishing before that. And he just doesn't fit. Mm. He's, he is unique mm. and that can be overused, but he, it's really difficult to, to pin him down because every novel's different. Um, and... He's a writer, but he's not necessarily, well, it's because it's not paying his, it's not giving him a living. Mm. So he's a very different relationship with it, I think, to, to others. And he's also, although he's writing, he's not necessarily defined by being a writer. I don't think Ron would have ever called himself a writer, necessarily. He's just obsessed with language, isn't he? It was, a, it was quite, I think it tortured him in some respects, his need to write. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily to make a living. He just needed to do it. Yeah. He, um, also the fact he didn't go to university. I wonder how much of that is significant because he's obviously, you know, intelligent enough to, to have done that. 
but that was just not an option for him having left school at 14 and just gone straight into work. Um, but whether that's, uh, you know, a significant part of the fact he never, he didn't probably didn't view himself as a, you know, a writer type, you know, an intellectual type, but definitely didn't really present himself as one either. I think his influences were, you know, a lot, it was largely American. He loved the American writers, you know, Cormac McCarthy, Whitman, um, all, all of his influences were was stuff that was found in the miners' libraries, really, or in the cinema. Yeah. Um, as opposed to formal education. Yeah. Yeah. And he definitely didn't sort of, um, I mean, what he could have done was, you know, in the 50s and 60s was really you know, played the professional Welshman, I suppose, and played on his his credentials as, you know, having come from a, a mining family and been growing up in that part of the world. But I don't know, what, what was his relationship with, with his Welshness, do you think? I think it's all to do with his relationship with history, though, really. They didn't really history didn't really hold Barry in any kind of thrall. It was just something that you lived through and you had no choice. Yeah, uh, and that's hence, hence, hence the title of his um, memoir, autobiography, history is what you live. Yeah, yeah. For him, it didn't overly romanticise the past by any means. No, and for him as well, it's more about I would say this, given my interest in his work, but it's more about place. It's all about the land. It's not about a romance. It's not about you know, the princes and all of that history. He is engaged with the history of where he's from. He is, nobody probably knows more about Blindcombe than he does in terms of, he, he knows about the archaeological digs, he knows about Bronze Age relics that were found. Um, he can read the landscape through the mine and so can see all these sort of, the layers of history, literally. literally. Yeah, yeah. So he, he's less interested in kind of um, an ideologised, kind of romanticised, uh, history of Wales and and his place within that. Um, does that make him a sort of an individualist? Do you think, or um, you know, it, it, he was never a card carry. He certainly wasn't a card carrying Labour uh, member, as far as I was aware. And while he was probably you, we'd now describe as socialistic, you know, a, a socialist in his political instincts. He was probably also an anarchist in some ways in his in his kind of resistance to um, institutions and and um, and ideologies, I suppose. Like arguments, even with people that he agreed with a lot of the time. Anyway, um, you can see that with, with the bloody-minded attitudes of his of the protagonist in his fiction as well. They 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 like to argue. They even. Even if they're politically aligned, they are sometimes, you know, diametrically opposed in their views. It's yeah. what he enjoys. Yeah, yeah. So he's never interested in kind of taking the easy route and no. smooth path of things. Yeah, and the, the outsiders always there in the fiction, that they never quite fit in. They're always on the edge. They're always aware of kind of the myth of society, the fact that it is just a really thin veneer and yeah. that kind of the other or I don't know what you'd call it but but uncivil behavior is always just mm. there 
I've got a good quote, I think, from the full-time amateur, which is kind of summarizes a bit of his sort of uh, antipathy to sort of institutions and and um, institutionalized officials and those sorts of people. There were two officials on the double parting, both arguing like grannies visited by senile dementia. That's why they were regular off-shift firemen. They were panickers. All they did was pass the exam in Forest School of Mines. There are some genuine brainless congenitals holding firemen certificates, although obviously you'd find them in every walk of life, high, low, and in between. I'd sooner be a black-toothed peasant than a mockery of an official. They all are anyhow officials, finger-daubing the halls of power like perversely educated simians, failed apes from UNO to any cannibal headman, from abbots, abbesses, to master planners and navigangers, parliamentarians, industrial psychologists, consultants, BBC untouchables, military charangs, professionals, administrators, my old lady at her worst, school teachers, business directors. Honestly, sometimes I feel like sicking myself to death. Mine's a rabid case of adolescence, granted, but who in the name of God can admire this civilization of ours? Mental mutilation in the press, vomit on the telly, dribbles on the radio, managers with the eyes of murderers, policemen with the trained synapses of hooligans, ministers with the savoir-faire of con men, university dons with the procrastination of haberdashers, statesmen with the empathy of coffin nails. Obviously that's a character voice in that, but I think the, char the character is, is very thinly veiled very. Yes, definitely. And I think it's, that sense of the outside, that sense of him not being in, he's not of the institutions, he is separate. It's, that comes out in lots of his characters. You think that was um, a weakness in, in the sense that he clearly found it difficult to, you know, it, it, I mean, it's pretty radically against the labor tradition, right? Of, of communal values and building institutions and um, you know, joining the Mill Voice Choir and being a part of of the community, he was he really didn't seem to feel comfortable doing any of that. <laughs> do you you know? Do you think? How do you think that sort of defines his his writing? He's he's very much individualistic, and it's all it, it's centered around him, and not in necessarily a selfish way. But he's just got so much going on and he's so conscious that he doesn't fit in, that he can't find a, a, his own space in that society. He'd have to change so much to be accepted or to enter that kind of community that it's as if he doesn't feel the need to do it. It, it would be compromising himself too much to do that. Yeah, I think it does sometimes come across as arrogance, but you know, underneath it all, there is a core humility there and that. That always comes out somehow <laughs> seems to escape from from that doesn't he yeah and he, he does have a sense of loyalty and he does have a sense of community to the other miners mm -hmm. to the people who have suffered like there's a there's an incredible couple of pages in the autobiography where he lists people he worked with and they're either dead or they're living with long-term health conditions as a result of mining. And it's, it's two pages of lists of names. It's like a liturgy. And he feels a real sense of responsibility to those people. And so he, he has got a sense of society and a sense of community, but it's not in 
this social institution is not through the Labour Party. It's not even necessarily through the union. It, it's with the people themselves. It's with people who, who've seen what he's seen. This is similarly, I think history is what you live ends with a line where he says he's the only member of the football team alive, isn't he? Yeah. He, he, he's, I think he sees the failures because he's basically not been caught by the safety net mm. of the welfare state, of those things that are meant to help people. He's fallen through the cracks. And mm. he sees other people who's fallen through it as well. Mm. And so it's a kind of celebration, isn't it, of outsiderdom in some respects. It's always it, they full of these like submerged populations of minorities, You've got like um, you know, veterans with P- PTSD. You've got um, disabled people who, ca- who can't work anymore, and they have to occupy themselves on an allotment. You've yeah. got um, got the terrier boys in sort of hunt and hunted they're all outsiders and you know, he manages to celebrate that really he does too and because he's writing in the 60s it's that he's catching the deindustrialization. he's catching men losing their jobs and their wives going out to work and so there's a great scene in flame and slag where um the main character's been injured in a in a pitfall and he's at home trying to teach of trying to learn how to peel potatoes because his wife's now working in the hoover factory or i'm not, not sure which no it's, it's polyacoffs isn't she she's in polyacoffs and he's at home trying to work out how on earth he peels spuds and cooks food for her to come home so it definitely come that definitely is coming through in his in, his, in his kind of the themes of his writing but there's also you know it what what like drew me to to his work initially was the fact that his prose style is really, really distinctive and different and experimental maybe isn't the right word or avant-garde, but it's definitely not conventional literary prose. Um, I mean, he's using a lot of kind of vernacular terms for, for, for uh, that you, that would be found in, in, in everyday Ronda, you know, South Welsh speech, I suppose. But also there's a lot of technical terms in there. I think Tony Brown in the book talks about there's a, a huge amount of technical jargon that he's using from coal mining. So he's kind of like, it's a compressed kind of uh, discourse that's sort of packed with all these different references. And like, some of the, sometimes you'll read a passage and you won't really know what's going on or what's been read, I find. You know, he's, he's always sort of trying to push at the edges of, um, of like normal received literary discourse, you know, and, and that doesn't always make him easy to read. No, definitely not. Because I think we all started, I think So Long Hector Beb was all, was each of ours introduction to his work. But it's certainly not the novel I'd recommend that people start with. Hector Beb, yeah. Yeah, because it's so hard. The way that he forces language, there's 14 different characters who all have chapters who, and you learn, you read the story from all of their perspectives. It's so much to get your head around. Yeah. Runs riot of language, doesn't he? Yeah. But in Flame and Slag's perhaps an easier novel to start with. It's still pretty mm. difficult in places because, again, he forces language and there's a, there's a pit, um, a tip slide in it. And the way he captures that action of the landscape moving and rolling, to try and capture that in language, he's, it's incredible how he does it. It's, a, it's sort of... He, he manages to liquefy it somehow. He liquefies language and the landscape, and it's all just moving. And it's yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of molten, isn't it? You know? Yeah, 
lava or something that is sort of melted all of this stuff together and, and sort of yeah that's a good way of yeah, it's really exciting stuff it is it's really visceral language yeah you feel alive it's, it's hard it, it's exhilarating yeah but that's what that's just what strikes me as, as as important about it is that is the fact that he's always with him it's always a struggle like as i say he could have taken the easy road and written kind of very straightforward elegiac kind of novels about the communities that he knew and about the life that he knew but he chooses to be difficult and i think that's what's really important about him he always takes the hard road and never and always works against the grain and i think that comes out in the prose doesn't it where it's it's, it's he's shaping difficult prose because because life is difficult you know <laughs> yeah is it in I think it's in um, History is What You Live. He reflects on, he, he takes to the hills, he goes up to the hills to kind of escape and he makes a little hide so that he can watch Peregrine, so he can watch various birds and whatever. And he says how he, he contemplated writing there, mm-hmm. but that he was scared of what might come out. So he's he's really conscious of the process of writing yeah yeah and it's, it's never a naturalistic writing obviously he's writing about nature but not in a naturalistic straight you know flowing prose like you know your rob mcfarlane's and those kinds of nature writers that you you know just hack writers that we see all the time these days you know he's interested in more it's not an, an idealization of the landscape at all no, it's, brutal. It, it, it's very Wild West, Cormac McCarthy, and places you can see parallels between. Yeah. And the writers. Nature is wild, isn't it? For various. Exactly. He he, yeah. he doesn't. He hates anthropomorphism. As we'll probably look into this later, but he he wants to write nature as wild, that it is untamable, that it is something that humanity exists within, and that we can't control it, and. And he's, and he's, I think he's, that comes through all his work because I think that's how we see society as well. He just, it, that it is this veneer and Hector Bebb really explores that with all these things that are happening. And there's this really, really thin veneer of social expectation and what happens when that begins to fall apart. Well, in your chapter in the book, Sarah, you, you referred to him as a, an ecocentric writer. Yeah. Um, he's basically Rhonda's version of Swampy in some ways. Um, I wasn't expecting to find Barry as an environmental writer at all because you go in, he's a miner, you think you know what you're going to get? Like, yeah, it's going to be like, um, it'll be like the 1930s writers. Jack Jones. Jack Jones. Um, Jones. Yeah. Kumarthi. All the Joneses. Yeah, all the Joneses. So it's going to be like that again. But then you start reading his work and you realise, no, it's not. And it's there in Hector Bebb. That was, as I said, that was, that was my introduction to his work. But there are some really savage scenes in that. Um, approach with caution. If you're a fan of uh, a Golden Retriever or a Labrador. Yeah. Um, yeah, approach with caution. Um, if you're a fan of those dogs. Um, same if you like sheep. Again, approach with caution. Um uh, there are some really quite horrific scenes in it, but the way he writes about nature, you think I, it made me think there's something more to this, that there's, there's something going on. And then 
in History's What You Live, he really picks up on his interest in the environment, in the landscape. And he writes about the process of going into Greig level, mm. um, which is behind a waterfall. So to get into this, um, the mine, it's not a shaft because it's a level, so it's, it's a horizontal mine shaft. He, he had to go through a waterfall to go in to mine the coal, which just seems absurd. But when you visit Blind Combe, you realise he was always going to be this kind of writer because it's a tiny one street, barely a village, but is utterly surrounded by hills so tall they're virtually mountains. It, it's, all, it's all there. It's, it's quite claustrophobic. It's a really strange place. It feels really cut off from the rest of the Ron the Vaud. And he spent so much time up on the hills, and it's all there in the autobiography. He's there, what? Um, he's there watching birds, which he developed in Peregrine. Watching, he rallies against the Forestry Commission planting the conifers on the hillsides because of what that will do to the native ecology, what that does to the soil. Um, he was, and and I found out more about that in his archives because there's decades worth of letters of him criticizing these plans. He was really conscious of the environmental damage that heavy industry had done to the area. Mm. He says he, he remembers the, the Ronda being, uh, the river being black, but then in his lifetime, he returns to spawning trout. And there he is on a, on the back of a moped with two buckets full of spawned trout that he's putting back in the river. It's, it's just incredible that this person was living all these unexpected things, that he wasn't just a miner, he wasn't just a lifeguard or a, a swimming bath manager. Yeah. He was very much a person within nature. Yeah, and which, you know, was, was pretty progressive and forward-thinking at that time, especially, again, against the romanticisation of... of of mining and heavy industry and that and that culture uh, that was going on in the 1960s and 70s. And you mentioned earlier the fact that he was sort of rejecting anthropocentrism and this this sort of way of depicting um, coal mining as very much a, a human endeavor that was important in terms of building community and building society and an empire and all the rest of it. Um, he didn't view it in those terms at all, did he? In, in kind of laborious terms. He describes it as being similar to deep sea fishing. <laughs> that it is this, that it's about seeking control over the natural world. And he writes about the fossils that you see in pits, that the, um, the sort of the strata of memory all that you literally see history in front of your eyes because you're so many feet underground mm. and you you're suddenly aware of the forces that are bigger than you that are literally shaping the geology and shaping the landscape you live in and so that it's that just comes through it all that he realizes that people are a really small part of the earth yeah and, and to the timeline of the earth yeah mm. And the fact that, I mean, he was, he was acutely aware of the way that landscape could shape human communities and, you know, a human life, his own life was like profoundly shaped by the fact that he was, was born in that place at that time. And so, presumably that made him very much aware of, <laughs> of, 
the fact that there were limitations to a, a, a history of that community that, that just celebrated, you know, the supposed human dominance over that landscape when, you know, the landscape was dominating him and, and those societies really. Yeah. <laughs> Not the other way around. No, and I think that's partly why he's so angry about the afforestation is that he can just see more of the same. Yeah. So, so can you tell me a bit more about that? So he was, he was dead against the kind of forestry commission kind of um, taking over those parts of those of of the upper parts of the Rhondda Valley and planting conifers there. Yeah. Um, obviously, the Rhondda been of the native trees that were there had been cut down in the early years of um, coal mining. So it was a bare uphill, uh, upland landscape. Which important to say was not the natural environment that it was. I mean, now we think of the cleared landscapes at the top of the valleys that would have once been natural wild forests, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's conscious of that. Um, but, you know, they've all been, and, and even further back, you know, the ancient carbon has been extracted out of... Um, the mines <laughs> he can just see it as another cash crop effectively that these conifers are going to be be planted he calls it a uh, a geometrized landscape yeah but what really gets to him is that it's restricting access to the freedom that the upland spaces offer people because there's no fences as um in one of his he wrote a letter to sunday times um and he said i can quote from it he says that the Forestry Commission has compounded a real and aesthetic blasphemy upon myself, my children and my grandchildren. We have been robbed of our natural ecology of space, simple geography, vistas, landmarks, besides ground nesting birds, pipits, lark, wheat ears, wind chats, crows, magpies, pigeons, jays and foxes are, thri are thriving. The Forestry Commission has contributed to the ruination of my inheritance. Midway into the next century, the village where I was born will be drowned in conifers. <laughs> and so you know, drowning is obviously really significant. He's drawing, you know, it's linking back to reservoirs and, and R.S. Thomas, who also wrote about afforestation. Um, but there's just a sense that, that he knows those hills and they're going to be obliterated because they're going to be completely camouflaged by conifers, which in 20 years time are going to be cut down again. The soil will be acid and nothing will be able to grow in it and that the ecology that there will be will be changed forever yeah it's sort of a second wave of industrialization in a way yeah yeah but that it's being sold to the community as a really positive thing um it was described as a great sweep of forestry here would absorb the jarring elements and restore a feeling of peace but it, it's nothing of the sort it's a completely unnatural manufactured la landscape. And, and, you know, look, look what's happened further down the, the Ronda when they do get harvested, as it were, and the problems that that causes in terms of increased runoff, blot gullies, flooding. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, they're, they're problematic and they're problematic all over the place. So much of Wales has been planted with these, with these conifers. Mm. But it's, it is cliche to say that he's progressive, but it's true. <laughs> really. It is. He's, he's ahead of his time. He's, he's just... You think he would have joined Extinction Rebellion? He would have... I don't know. I think he would have kind of supported or appreciated that somebody was, was um, 
fighting for the cause. Mm. I don't think he would particularly like XR. I don't really think it was it's necessarily uh, embracing of grumpy old working class duffel coated writers. Or vice versa. Uh, or vice versa. Yeah, I think he would have probably just done his own up up in Blindcombe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if he'd agreed with them, he would have found a way to disagree with them. So, <laughs> in some way, he was. Yeah. Though, yeah, I think. Yeah, the grumpiness is an important part of who he was as well. Towards the later years, definitely. Um, but you know, he'd lived a life, so <laughs> he had the right to be grumpy. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, yeah. Okay. Progressive is a is environmentally. Minded is a good way of, of uh, thinking about him then. George, I wanted to ask you as well about, about your chapter in the book. Because um, your work takes quite a different perspective on, on uh, another sort of aspect of his, of his writing. And that's his, his own physical disability, but also his, his representation and depiction of mental and physical disability as a result of industrialization. I suppose I came to Barry with the view of looking for uh, disabled um, characters or representations or opinions on disability. And I, I definitely found them. They were prolific. There's, there's so many disabled characters in his, in his writing. Um, he's really interested in the process of becoming disabled as opposed to being born disabled. Um, in that respect, it's all to do with how disability limits your capacity to work, really. The vast majority of representations are mm. around that. Um, he makes disability appear a present fact in everyday life. It is part of the life course. He manages to naturalise it, um, really. And like we touched upon earlier, um, Barry talks about... Um, you know, life is basically choosing your own sort of hell. <laughs> so it's psychological scarring, permanent physical disability, pneumoconiosis, tuberculosis. Um, the, you know, these things have huge, they're a huge presence in his um, collection of short stories. Mm. Um, he's got this kind of unjudgmental familiarity with, with disability. Um, and it's really interesting how disability works in the context of this persistent macho, high-risk culture of the minds. So he's not, yeah. there's never a sense that he's sort of, um, I mean, he, he is elegizing and, ce and celebrating the, the, just the gritty reality of, of, of living that life be it you know living a difficult life in the uh, in the mm -hmm. upper <laughs> ronda valley but not with um idealizing or romanticizing it in like you know the staganovite kind of sense of you know look at these bur tough burly masculine men doing their job you know this is the most um high risk rewarding you know masculine macho culture that there is there, there's never you know that he's totally undercutting and underwriting that kind of view of yeah. Of mine and more, rather than elegies for sort of a particular male body, it's 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 elegies for personal endurance, that sort of thing. He's, yeah. There is there's a short story called Time Spent, and um, it's about a character called Lewis Rimmer who is certified as being 
100% dust. Whatever measurements they were using, he's got the worst case scenario. And he's been served notice from the mine. Um, But he doesn't really believe that he's as damaged as as they're suggesting. And he's he's really concerned about the but the loss of identity that this would bring when he stopped, when he finishes mining. So what Barry presents him as doing is he actually goes and um, breaks his arm then to sort of further exacerbate his disability um, before committing suicide in his pigeon loft. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, he's got some really interesting representations of, of disability. How, how much do you think that was um, a reflection of his own struggles with um, his own disability and, and his sense of masculinity? Because like we said earlier, you know, he's, as a teenager, he is extremely fit and extremely athletic and a talented athlete as well. And, you know, in, in like peak physical shape, I can't remember the term he uses for it now, uh, but you know he's very, and he knew he was in his peak of fitness, and and was reveling in the fact that he was um, able to cycle for like hours and hours on end. And yeah, back or one of the reasons I was really interested in Barry as well is because my my own grandfather, who I never really knew very well, was a contemporary of Barry's, and he lived in Porth, and he used to cycle like massive distances as well i think uh, my grandson he cycled to liverpool and back once yeah you know i what what it all also confirms for me and this is just a personal gripe but like living where we do at the sort of top end of the swansea valley all you ever see on the weekends is like middle-aged men in really expensive like on like three thousand pound bikes struggling up the most pathetic inclines and you think that Barry was doing this in the 30s with a bike that probably weighed the same as like a a modern car yeah exactly yeah uh, there's this quote from time spent which I'll I'll read out it probably encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about um Lewis Rimmer's lungs are certified as 100% dust and after disbelief he complains to himself uh by Jesus, men are pegging out with 50%. I'm miles from that state. Rough chest first thing in the morning, short of breath until the circulation starts moving. Good Christ Almighty, 57, packing it in at my age. It doesn't make sense. Bloody hell. It's Collier's in vowel clothes and pension time. Old plodders still clearing the yardage every shift. Me, bloody scrap heap. He must have been acutely aware of, of, of that feeling. You know, 23 and getting that kind of injury, that means... It's really going to limit your options as a working man. And in that time, in that culture, that's a really, you know, debilitating thing. Difficult thing. um, Yeah, he certainly doesn't treat able-bodiedness complacently. Um, And I think what you get from a lot of his writing is that, you know, ordinary people, people with disabilities, they can be the focus of, and the subject of stories and, you know, their experience matters. Um, that's what came across. Yeah. yeah. As in it wasn't, you know, he's not just using the idea of disability as a metaphor or, but he is partly using it as a critique of that culture, that masculinist, you know, physical culture. But he's aware enough of, of 
the reality of it that he's doing it justice. Yeah, these people with disabilities, they, they've got, they're multifaceted, they, they are, there's so many dimensions, um, there's no, there's no cliche in his, in his representations of disability. Barry's really, really interested in it, really interesting in how he writes women. He's one of the first kind of co-field writers to really write women well. He, it's fascinating. Um, there are some controversial scenes in right? There are, there yeah. are. Um, so long Hector Bebb's got a, a particularly um, troubling, quite misogynistic scene, um, very much of, I guess it's of its time. Um, some, yeah, misogynist language, um, particularly in that novel, or in that scene in particular. But... Um, I don't think he's as anti-feminist as, as can be made out. He's has got this kind of quiet reverence for, mm. for women and can't quite escape from that sometimes. Um, there is a quote in Full Time Amateur where uh, one of the protagonists says, you know, he'd give a few years to really understand women. He doesn't know how a man could ever really understand women. <laughs> and that, I think that mm. is perhaps um, one of Barry's viewpoints, really. Yeah, there's there's an awful lot of respect for women. Um, and I think he, he grew up with a lot of women and a lot of influential women. His his quite terrifying grandmother, who was a midwife and the former mayoress of Blancombe in the 20s. Blancombe, yeah. Um, what a position. I know. She looks, I don't know, what she looks quite terrifying. Um, but he was surrounded by strong women. And I think women he was a bit afraid of, potentially. And yeah, I think that, I think that that quote George really sums it up is that he he recognises that there is that women are different, and he respects that, and he kind of negotiates that in in his work. Does he have yeah. from a female perspective? He does. I think there's a short story which is in the collected short stories, which is from a female perspective, or at least part of it's from a female perspective. And I think it's got one of the first sex scenes in from a female perspective, certainly in industrial fiction. Um, the first female perspective sex scene. It's very, it's very much a break from the fiction of the 30s in which women are, they're certainly not characters, they're cardboard cutouts that are there as a plot device. Yeah. Barry's women are proper characters, they're complex. They're manipulative, um, aren't they? They're manipulative, they're calculating, they're materialistic, they've got sexual desires. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there that we need to look at. Somebody needs to look at it. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, you know, there are too many good reasons to read Ron Berry. We did an episode earlier in the year with Noel Griffiths and, you know, he now has been open and written about the, how much of an influence Ron Berry was on his work. And uh, yet, Barry is still pretty neglected. I mean, his, his works are in print. <laughs> Not all of them, but um, probably the best known, Flame and Slag and uh, Hector Bebb are both, both in print. So, you know, everyone should go out and buy them and actually read them because they're phenomenal. And I think they capture something of the essence of uh, the nightmare of what it is to be Welsh. <laughs> yeah. I think um, Rachel Trezise as well has mentioned. Yeah. His influence on her, you know, she's calling the giant, an unsupposing giant whose shoulders she stands upon. 
yeah. which I didn't even realise until after the time really. <laughs> um, I think one of Barry's daughters went to a book launch of hers and told her that you know, she would really struggle to make a living out of writing and that's how she was introduced to Barry, um, was one of, by one of Barry's daughters. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know mm. that. I'd like yeah. to get, I want to get Rachel for size on, on this, so yeah, excellent. Yeah, Rachel, you'll have to come on at some point. Insist. She's got a new book next year. She can come on and talk about the new book. Oh, perfect. She can plug that in. <laughs> we're think... plugging books. We should mention uh, again the fact that Fight and Flight is out with University of Wales Press yeah. and uh, available to order in time for Christmas for Barry fans. Definitely. Beautiful cover. It is a beautiful cover, yeah, yeah. Yes. I can say that because it was George's find. I didn't come up with the cover. Uh, we, we really struggled to find a title for, for, the, um, or for the collection of essays. It was just going to be Ron Berry at 100 collected essays. Well, this is much better. Well, this is better. <laughs> but, um, yeah, obviously, aside from the reference to um, Peregrine Watching and Boxing. Yeah. Fight and flight probably sums up the adrenaline-inducing experience of reading Ron Barry, so everybody should. Yeah, it's a t it's a brilliant title. I love it, and it's a great book. It's the first collection of um, kind of critical essays on his work, and it's the first sort of yeah sustained effort to to offer a critical interpretation of him, isn't it? So yeah, required reading for Barry fans. We're really really lucky as well because we had we had family support and involvement and. We think it's given a dimension to the book that we were, would have been sorely missed, I think, if we hadn't had their support. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been really great to, to involve them. And I think, I just hope that it, it kind of, I would say reignites, but even just ignites some interest in him because he's so important. He's so interesting. Like, who wouldn't want to see a film of So Long Hector Beb? It would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a grand tragedy of South Wales, isn't it? It's, it's, it sums up so much of the experience. This is part of the issue, though, isn't it? Is that his, his work does rub against the grain, and it, it and it doesn't fit the usual narratives we have of of Welshness and South Welshness, whether that's the Labourist version or the the kind of nationalist version either. He he was pretty <laughs> adamantly a, uh, an anti-nationalist. I. I you know, he certainly didn't view himself. He under, I'm sure he understood himself as Welsh and the fact that he was shaped by his place and his time. But you know, was so against institutions and 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 grand ideologies and grand narratives that you know to call himself Welsh or to claim himself as a Welshman was very problematic for someone like him. Yeah, he was Ron the first and foremost. He, Ron the. He yeah. is Ron the, the Ron, yeah. <laughs> yeah both. Cool. Okay, thank you both so much for, uh, for that introduction and you know, overview of his work. Uh, the usual tradition is to ask you if you've got any um, beefs or shout-outs to give out at the end of the app. So if you've got anything, anyone you want to shout-out to, go ahead. Anybody say? I'm going to shout out to the rest of the crew because because we've managed to get through this and not and not mention that that the three of us used to well we've all we've shared an office at at certain points Georgia and I worked together Kieran and I wrote overlapped slightly PhDs together I think so yeah basically 
Yeah, Shout out to the crew crew. Centre for Research into the English Literature and Language of Wales. Any beefs, Sarah? Uh, too many to mention, you know, me. Yeah, always beefing you, aren't you? Yeah. Georgia, shout out to me. I'm very zen these days. Yeah. No shout outs or beefs, just a Buddhist uh, yeah. zen. <laughs> no highs and no lows. Okay. Good. Well, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Andrew Pomper, who won't be listening to this, but um, uh, is having a bit of a tough time. So I thought I'd say hello, say hello to Pomper. Beefs with um, Dan and Nath, really, for for uh, being too busy to do this app with us today. But it's been a really good one anyway. So thank you again, both. As always, subscribe, subscribe, like and subscribe to Patreon. Follow us on Twitter, uh, spread the word, and go and buy some Ron Berry books and read them, please. Okay, thanks everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Immoral. Yeah. I think you can afford to be immoral if you want to. Or amoral if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Take the consequences, that's all. So, so that's... I'll be cunning. Be very cunning.